the Lord granted to me and my wife as a gift two boys when we uh, started uh, having children. And, you know, boys are boys. Buzz Lightyear, lightsabers, football helmets, I mean, you name it. I mean, rough and tumble, boys are boys. Then, our third child was a girl. And I just marvel at how God makes boys and girls so different. And now, with Abby Faith, princesses, ballerinas, when I tuck her in at bed at night, I have to tuck her baby doll in with her. I mean, it's just a totally different ball game. And she likes this little show on Disney called Sophia the First. Anybody out there know about Sophia the First? Or have you ever seen it? And Sophia the First is an interesting story. It's about a little girl and her single mother, and her single mother falls in love with a uh, king. And so uh, Sophia becomes a part of a royal family. And in the opening song of that show, it says, I'm finding out what being royal is all about. Kind of the show is about her learning to be royalty. And I thought about that line. I'm finding out what being royal is all about. That is a great line to apply to followers of Christ. Because in Christ, did you know that we become sons and daughters of the king. We step into, by God's grace, a royal family. And when that happens, we've got we've to find out what being royal is all about. And so this morning, I want to encourage you ladies. I want to talk to you about being a daughter of the king and what that entails for your life, the callings, the, the privileges, the joys of being a daughter of the king. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to begin reading in verse 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Actually, back up to verse 14. We're going to start in verse 14 and read down through verse 18 to get a better feel for the context. And keep your Bibles open. We're going to turn to many different places in the Word of God this morning. And just FYI, we're going to go fast. Got a lot of ground to cover, so I know I'm talking fast, okay? I'm doing it on purpose. Got a lot of ground to cover. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I want to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. We honor you moms. I'll say a few words about that at the end of our service. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, the Bible says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has, has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, 
watch this, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Says who? Says the Lord Almighty. Think about that. Sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we pause to give you glory. What a joy, what a joy to be sons and daughters of God. And what a joy to gather with our brothers and sisters in these moments. What a joy to praise your great name. And what a joy to be still before you in these moments and let you speak into our lives through your word. So Lord, have your way here. Inspire, convict, encourage, comfort, bless, strengthen, change, transform. Glorify yourself in this place. Lord, I ask that you would establish my steps in your word today. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. This is a wonderful passage that that I wish I had more time to preach, and maybe one day we'll come back to this passage. But in this passage, we see some promises of God uh, coupled with a, a call to holiness. We see the promises there in verses 16 and 17, and the promises are twofold. Number one, God promises that his people will experience personal intimacy with him. It says there, I will make my dwelling among them, verse 16, and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. So he's saying, in Christ, when you know me as your God, as your personal Savior, you will experience a personal, growing, intimate relationship with me, personal intimacy with God. And the second promise is personal adoption. Look what it says in verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. So when you meet Jesus as your Lord and Savior, not only are your sins forgiven, and are you justified before a holy God because your sins have been washed away, when you meet Jesus, you become a child of God. He becomes your father. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it would have been enough if God would have just forgiven us and say, you are justified. You get to go to heaven because your sins have been forgiven. My son died for your sins. That would have been enough, but God didn't stop there. God said, not only am I going to justify you, I'm going to adopt you. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. Personal adoption. Intimacy with God as a son or daughter of God, has been and and is God's plan for his people. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. You have this relationship with God, you become a child of God. Now, because of those promises, there is a call to holiness. Look what he says in verse 17. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. God's desire is that his people walk away from wickedness because now they're sons and daughters of God. They walk away from wickedness and walk toward him. In other words, when you become a son or daughter of the king, it means something for your life, right? There's great privilege there, but there's also a great calling over your life. I like what Warren Wiersbe writes. Because of God's gracious promises, we have some spiritual responsibilities now. Now that you're a son or daughter of God, it means something for your life. And so here's the question. What are our responsibilities as children of God? For example, what does it mean to be a 
uh, a son of God? What does biblical manhood look like? Well, I've given you a definition there. I looked at several different resources, and I kind of put together this, this definition. And during our men's breakfast on Thursday mornings, first Thursday of the month, we've been walking through this definition piece by piece. We started back in the fall, and we ended in the spring, just thinking through what it means to be a man from a biblical perspective. And here's the definition that we studied our way through. A biblical man is spirit-filled, fears God, leads with courage and compassion, is mighty in the scriptures and prayer, and is passionate for the glory of Christ among the nations. That's what it means to be a man of God. These are the the callings, the responsibilities for men of God. And so, if you haven't been to our men's breakfast, men, take this this definition home with you, look at the accompanying scriptures, and, and meditate on what it means to be a man of God from a biblical perspective. But I also, this morning, want to share with you what it means to be a daughter of God. And so what I've given you here is I've given you, ladies, a definition of biblical womanhood for daughters of the king. A definition of biblical womanhood for daughters of the king. So it's one definition, but I've broken it down into separate parts. We're going to walk through this definition line by line. Now, just kind of a quick word. This definition is not exhaustive. There's there's a lot more to be said about being a woman of God. This is a starting place. For example, I don't have in here the line I have in the men's definition about being mighty in the scriptures and in prayer. But that's implied that as a woman of God, a daughter of the king, you need to be mighty in prayer and, and a, a, a person that's growing in their knowledge of God's words. But that's not in your definition. It's implied, okay? So this is, not, this is not exhaustive. What I've done with this definition is I've gone to different passages of scripture that speak to women. I've kind of compiled them and, and put them together in a way that we can think through what it means to be uh, a woman of God, a daughter of the king. So you ready? Now, this sermon is not just for women, by the way. Some of you guys are saying, okay, I'm done. I'm through. That, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll just take the rest of the sermon off. No, no, no. This helps you to understand how to pray for your wife or your future wife or your daughter or your loved ones. It's how you pray for them and how you encourage them. And so, men, you need to pay special attention here during this sermon. There are going to be some things that apply to you as well. So let's just walk through this definition piece by piece. Number one, a biblical woman is spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. Over in Ephesians 5.18, Paul gives us a, a commandment. He says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That verb, be filled, is a present imperative passive. The present tense means this is to be a continual reality in your life. You are to continually, day by day, be filled with the Spirit. And it's, a, it's an imperative, which means it's a command. And it's passive, which means it's not you strengthening yourself. It's you letting God strengthen you with His indwelling Spirit. That's what that verb means. And, and the, the contrast there helps us to understand what is meant by the filling of the Spirit. It says, don't get drunk with wine. Why? Because it begins to control you. So instead of letting wine control you, let the Spirit of God fill you. Let the Spirit of God control you. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead who lives on the inside of you, if you're a believer in Christ, is in control. He's filling up your life. He's empowering you. He's guiding you. And, and you daily surrender to the control of the Holy Spirit. Now, 
Wait, why is it important that a woman and a man, this is the first part of the men's definition, why is it important that we are filled with the Spirit? Well, because, listen, it is not difficult to be a woman of God. It is impossible. <laughs> Does that encourage you this morning? It's not difficult. What, what God calls you to, what the Word of God calls it's not difficult. It's impossible in your own strength. It's impossible apart from God's power. So you need some help, right? And when He is in control of your life, the Holy Spirit fills you with wisdom and strength. And so the rest of this definition is going to require your wisdom. The rest of this definition is going to require your strength. And so the starting point has to be, Spirit of God, fill up my life. Spirit of God, empower me. Spirit of God, take over my life. Spirit of God, take control of my life to help me to be who you've called me to be. Got it? Being a woman of God, a daughter of the king, begins with the spirit-filled life. You cannot do it in your own. You can't be a, a mom. You can't be a wife. You can't be who God's called you to be apart from the filling of the spirit. So that's the first part of this definition. A daughter of the king, a biblical woman is spirit-filled. Secondly, a biblical woman fears the Lord. Now, turn to Proverbs chapter 31. You can't have a Mother's Day sermon without Proverbs 31, can you? Proverbs 31, look what the Bible says in verse 30. Proverbs 31, verse 30. The Bible says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. There's a lot in that verse. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. In other words, women are called not to chase charm and not to chase beauty. They're called to chase the Lord. They're called to pursue Him, to fear Him, to rightly relate to Him by fearing Him. So the starting place of a healthy relationship with God is fear. Fear. To fear God means that you acknowledge God in every area of your life. It means that you live in awe towards God. You, you, are, you are just in awe of his greatness, of his grandeur, of his glory, of his splendor, of his grace, of his love, of his power. You're in awe of God. And it means that you recognize you are accountable to God. You're accountable to God. I read it this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that all of those that know Christ will one day stand before Christ to give an account for how we lived our lives as Christians. On that day, it's going to be as if the Lord says, listen, you know, I gave you the Spirit of God on the inside of you. I gave you the Word of God that's before you. I've given you the church that's all around you. What have you done with the resources I've given to you to serve me? And to, to fear God means you understand you're accountable to God for how you live for Him, for how you serve Him. Now that judgment for Christians is not in reference to eternity. If you know Jesus, you're going to heaven when you die. But that judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, is all about rewards and giving an account for your life lived as a follower of Jesus. And so a biblical woman fears the Lord. Do you Listen, do you fear God? That, that phraseology is quickly leaving our nation. It was common in, in days past to talk about being a God-fearing nation or such and such being a God-fearing family. 
But we don't use that terminology anymore. But the Bible says that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That captures God's attention, right? And so a biblical woman fears the Lord. Next, a biblical woman finds her identity and satisfaction in Christ alone. A biblical woman finds her identity and satisfaction in Christ alone. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. You thought you were through with Colossians, didn't you? So much, you just keep coming back to Colossians. I love it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Colossians chapter 3, look in verse 3. For, this is what it means to be a Christian. For you have died, the old you has died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so Paul reminds us that Jesus not, does not just give us life, life eternal, life abundant, but when we become followers of Christ, Christ becomes our life. Our reason for living, our all in all. And keep that in mind as you look over with me in 1 Timothy. A few pages over, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes, but godliness, fearing God, living with Christ as your all, godliness with what? What's the word? With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So notice this connection between identity in Christ, Christ is our life, and contentment. Godliness, when accompanied by contentment, is great gain. Now, now if you look there in your notes, the lie of the world is that your identity is found in your appearance or your achievements. It's the lie of the world. I mean, we are bombarded with commercials, with magazine covers with media who society holds up as stars. We're bombarded with the idea that if you have the right look, if you have the right appearance, or you achieve the right things, that's where your identity is found. And it is a lie from the pit of hell. And if you, listen, if you are chasing after appearance or prominence or achievement to try to find identity and satisfaction in life, you will be found wanting. It's like Mick Jagger said, I can't get no satisfaction. You know why? He was looking at all the wrong places. So what does it mean? What does it mean to, to have that identity and have that satisfaction? Here's what it means. It means you don't allow the world or other people or your past to define who you are. Ladies, you hear me? You don't allow the world, you don't allow other people or your past to define who you are. To, to find identity in Christ means that you remember and rejoice in who you are in Christ. 
That's what's most important in your life is your relationship with King Jesus. That's front and center. That's, that's what's most important. That's what defines you and identifies you as a person, not your appearance, not your achievements, not your, not your past, not your husband, not your kids, but Jesus. That's where you find your identity. That's what it means. Christ, who is your all. And here's how it works. Look in this last phrase. When you realize that Christ is your everything, you will not seek other sources of satisfaction. See, the reason some of you are looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places is because you don't understand identity. You don't understand that Christ is your everything. And and if, if Christ is not your everything, you're going to be looking everywhere else for what only Christ can deliver. That makes sense? So stop looking everywhere else and and realize that in Christ, he is your everything, he is your identity, and he is the one, the only one that can satisfy. I believe a biblical woman finds her identity and satisfaction in Christ alone, but there's another part of this definition. A biblical woman understands true beauty understands true beauty. This is related. But turn to 1 Peter in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter writes... Do not let your adorning be external. You might say merely external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. So what's the alternative? If that's not beauty, if hair and jewelry and clothing's not beauty, what's beauty? Well, look what it says. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable, I love that, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And it goes on, which in God's sight is very precious. Man, what truth is found in those verses. What is true beauty? True beauty from God's perspective is godly character and good works. Godly character and good works. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, this is what Paul says about beauty. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. He says that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So over in Peter, he says, beauty is the hidden person of the heart. And Paul says, beauty is the good works that a woman does for the glory of Christ. So so what's true beauty? True beauty is not adornment. It's not appearance. It's not about what other people think about you. True beauty is when you are growing in godly character and when you are allowing God to use your life to serve others, to do great things, For his glory. That's true beauty. That's what the Bible says. 
True beauty from God's perspective is godly character and good works. And here's the deal. Look at this next phrase. I don't want you to miss this. This kind of beauty doesn't fade. It grows. Look what it says in 1 Peter 3. He says, verse 4, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty. So he's contrasting here godly beauty with worldly beauty. And we know what he's saying, right? Worldly beauty fades. I mean, our bodies every moment are decaying, right? I know that's kind of morbid, but that's the truth. I mean, every moment we're getting closer and closer to our appointment with death. That'll bless you, won't it? And and guess what? I I don't care how hard you fight, you're fighting a losing battle. Is it okay to want to look nice? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's okay to want to look nice and, and, and of course, be attractive for, for your spouse and all of that. that, 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 is, that that's all that's important. But understand that, that physical beauty fades. It's perishable, right? But what Peter and Paul are talking about here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, is godly beauty. He says it's imperishable. Instead of fading, it grows. It grows. Here's what that means, ladies. As you grow, as you, as you get older, you can get more beautiful. Amen? Godly character, good works, imperishable beauty. Women of God, daughters of the king, get this. They understand true beauty. And their life is not spent in the frivolous pursuit of, of, of just wanting to appear a certain way for others. That's what it means to be a daughter of the king. Let me say it like this. What ultimately matters is what your father thinks. I'll say it again because I didn't hear any women on that. What ultimately matters is what your father thinks. But there's another part of this definition. A biblical woman lives with a passion for God's glory in the home. If you look at the Bible, you see that a woman's priority is is to be focused on the home. Look what it says in Proverbs 31. Back to Proverbs 31. Back to Proverbs 31, verse 27. The Bible says that she, this virtuous woman, excellent woman, woman who fears the Lord, it says that she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. So notice that because this this excellent woman, this excellent wife has made the home a priority. Her children and her husband rise up and call her blessed. Now, keep that in mind and turn to Titus with me in the New Testament. Told you I'd have you turning a lot this morning. Titus chapter 2. Verse 3.
Titus or Paul here writing to Titus is giving some instructions for different age groups in the life of the church. And in verse 3, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so the older women are teaching younger women to make the home a priority. So if you look there in your notes, God calls the wife to make the home a priority. So I'm not speaking here of, of work outside the home. Uh, that, that, that I think it's up to every individual family. Uh, it seems that the, the excellent wife over in Proverbs 31 is, is very industrious and she's doing some things outside of the home to maybe bring in some income. And so you can't just draw a line and say women should not work outside of the home. You, you can't, you can't just, you, but, but listen, whether you're working outside the home or, or you only work inside the home, whatever the case may be, the Bible is clear that women should make the home, the nurturing of the home, a priority. That's what the Bible says. It's just very, very clear. So the nurture and love, listen, of a wife and mom is a great blessing to husbands and children. The children rise up, call her blessed. The husband rises up and says, you're, 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 you're a blessing. The nurture and love of a wife and mom is a great blessing to husbands and children. That's why we got the phrase, if mom ain't happy, what? Nobody's happy, right? Because, because the mom is what makes things tick. And, and if mom ain't happy... No one else is happy, but if mama is, is, is happy and nurturing and loving and joyful, that spills over into everyone else's life and becomes a blessing. The nurturing love of a wife and mom is a great blessing to husbands and children. Now listen to this. Joyful, godly, well-ordered homes glorify God. Joyful, godly, well-ordered homes glorify God. A home... When I say well-ordered, I mean a home that has its priorities straight. They know Jesus comes first. And everything else comes after Jesus. That's what I mean by a well-ordered home. I read an anecdote about Sarah Pierpont Edwards. She was married to the famous 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards, who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, among many other things. But... She was a, a loving, nurturing wife and mother. And this article I read said that the many people who visited the home of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards were impressed by the peace which flourished in the home. There was none of the quarreling or coldness so common in other homes. Husband and wife supported and admired each other. And here's the part I thought was cool. Evangelist George Whitfield, after spending a few days in the calm, happy Edwards home, was so impressed that he determined to get married himself. And he said, a sweeter couple I have not yet seen. Now here's the deal. If a single person was able to be in your home and spend some time with you, and see your home, would it make them want to get married? Would it make them say, I want that. Man, I want a, a, I want a, a wife or a husband to spend my life with, and, and if the Lord should grant us kids, we'll have kids, and there'll be a happy, joyful, well-ordered home like they have. Would your home 
your marriage and your kids and your home, would it make people jealous for that? Because, can I tell you this? If God's given you kids, you have some single folks in your home. Right? And are they going to look at your marriage and say, I want that? Are they going to look at your home and say, I want that when I get older? A happy, joyful, godly, well-ordered home glorifies God and blesses the husband, blesses the children. And so a biblical woman lives with a passion for God's glory in the home. But listen, the passion for God's glory doesn't stop there. Look at the last part of this definition. A biblical woman lives with a passion for God's glory among the nations. Among the nations. Turn to Psalm 96 with me. Psalm 96 verse 3. The psalmist writes, declare his glory among who? Among who? The nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples, all the the people groups on the face of the earth. We should have that heart, uh, men, women, boys, girls, followers of Christ. We should have that heart that, that Christ's glory is made known among the lost. So that those who are far from God and lost and in their sins can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus and drawn near to God and have a relationship with God the same way that we do. Let me say it like this. I don't see how you can be a woman of God, a biblical woman, and not care about the lost. Yes, you have responsibility to make your home a priority. But the goal is that, that the love of Jesus, the light of Jesus, overflows from your home to a lost and dying world. A daughter of the king should be concerned with the kingdom. Right? You're a daughter of the king, King Jesus. And if you're a daughter of the king, you should be concerned about the expansion of his kingdom. I want to leave you with this thought. A woman that has a passion for making disciples of all the nations, is a powerful instrument in the hands of God. A woman that has a passion for making disciples of all the nations, starting in New Jerusalem, is a powerful instrument in the hands of God. Now, I'll be honest with you. My home growing up, we didn't talk about missions at all. My church, my, my church experience was limited when it came to discussions about missions and God's glory being made known among the nations. But there were two women in our church, two women, Peggy Whidden, Helen Pitts. And they had a heart for the world. And the only time I heard about missions was when one of those two ladies came up to the front And the pastor would give them just a few moments and they would read from a WMU magazine an anecdote about some missionary in some place in the world. And because of those two women, I was exposed to missions. It's the only time I remember hearing much about missions growing up in my church. 
But what about you? Your kids are going to care about the lost and care about the nations in direct correlation to the way that you care about the lost and care about the nations. So I just want to encourage you as, as, as moms to take the lead in praying for unreached people groups. We have so many families that we've been connected with through the years that are serving uh, in North America and overseas, you know, serving the Lord, planting churches, being missionaries, making disciples. We have so many folks we know, get their cards, put them on the refrigerator, pray, talk about them, but be a, a mom, be a wife with a with a a global vision. And if you're single, be a, a, a lady with a, with a global vision because a, a, a woman that has the desire for the glory of Christ among the nations, a woman that wants to make disciples, is a powerful instrument in the hands of God. I can promise you this. If your kids hear about missions from me, They may forget about it. They may put it on the shelf somewhere and say, okay, that's just preacher being preacher. But if they hear about missions from you, and they see your your eyes fill up with tears over billions in the world that never even heard the name of Jesus, and they see you cry out to God for unreached people groups, and see you pray that God would thrust out more laborers into the harvest, and see you even support them if God should send them out? Oh, oh, what a lasting impact that will make. So wait, this is Mother's Day. It's not a missions day. Oh, it's, it's missions day because it's all about the glory of Christ. Right? So what is a, what is a biblical woman all about. What does it mean to be a daughter of the king? A biblical woman is spirit-filled, fears the Lord, finds her identity and satisfaction in Christ alone, understands true beauty, and lives with a passion for the glory of God in the home and among the nations. That's not exhaustive, but that's a pretty good starting place. And so let's ask for God's help, ladies. And let's ask for God's help, men, to fulfill the calling of God that's on our lives as sons and daughters of the King.